Well, well, welcome to All Nations once again. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here, but people call me DC, so you can feel, for, uh, feel free to call me DC. Um, last week, uh, we closed our series on discipleship, and one of the main ideas that Pastor Michael tried to really communicate to us is that discipleship is, is not a destination, but a direction. In other words, uh, discipleship is not a program that you finish, but it's more of a process uh, of becoming more and more uh, like the one that we worship, and that is Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's a journey uh, that we're on, uh, that is an endless journey until the end of our time or when Jesus comes back. And so it's much of a process and uh, not a destination, but a direction. Uh, and so if you um, weren't able to catch that series, I want to encourage you to go back onto our podcast, because uh, this, uh, this four-part series, I, I believe, is very foundational for our church, and for you to know what we are about and what we're hoping to become. And so I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. Today, we're going to go back into our gospel series uh, through the gospel of Mark. Uh, we took a break over the summer, and we're going to restart it today. And although uh, we close our series on discipleship, one of the major themes that we see in the gospel of Mark is discipleship and, and what it looks like and what it's calling us to. Uh, and so although we ended that series, we're going to continue the wave of learning more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I hope today's message will just be supplemental and an add-on from what we've learned so far in discipleship. And so if discipleship is a direction, what we're going to see today in our passage uh, are further directions and um, a glimpse into what that journey entails and what it's going to look like. Uh, And so if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, and we're going to read verses uh, 2 to 13. 2 to 13. I'll give you guys some time to get to there. Uh, This is a one-time unique event uh, that was, uh, that only a few disciples were able to witness. Uh, This is a mountaintop experience, and both in the Old Testament and New Testament, whenever there is a mountaintop experience, we know that it's going to be a pivotal moment in uh, the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of God. And so let's give our full attention as I read God's word for us. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they have seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does, co- does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did, did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's word. Amen. You know, this past week, Jane and I, we celebrated our eighth uh, eight-year anniversary. Um, thank you for that. 
You know, there, there aren't too many things that I re- remember from my wedding day, not because I had too much to drink or anything like that, but just because that day was just so crazy. So many things was, uh, were happening on that day, uh, t- taking pictures. My family came in from out of town, and it was just, it was just crazy. But there was just one moment that I'll, I just will never forget. Uh, and we got married in Pasadena at the Cravens Estate, a beautiful uh, place. And uh, it was time for me to finally see Jane uh, in her wedding gown. And uh, so, you know, how it goes is, you know, the guy comes out first with a back turn, and then the bride comes in, Jane comes in, and she taps me on the shoulder, and I turn around, and, you know, videographers, photographers want to capture that first look. And um, I just remember, that I vividly remember, uh, seeing Jane for the very first time in this beautiful, like, cream white gown, and she had a, a, the, the, I don't know, the, the train of the, the gown or whatever, it was just flowing, and it was just glorious, it was beautiful. Um, but at the same time, reality hit me really hard when I saw her that I'm getting married. Um, this is my last day uh, of a single man. Uh, so I was, I was blown away by her beauty, but also at the same time, I realized that my life is going to be changed forever in marrying Jane. Um, and it's, it's a moment I will never forget. She's going to be my wife forever till death do us part. And so there are moments in our lives where reality hits us hard, whether you get your first ultrasound or when you graduate from college and you apply for your, or you get a first interview and you get your job and it's the first day at the desk and you just realize, man, my, my, my life is over by work or, you know, I'm going to have a child, I'm going to be a father, I'm going to be a mother. And there are moments like these where it's just a life-defining, life-changing moment. And so what we see here in today's passage is the disciples have their first look, their first real look at Jesus. They saw him for who he really was. And this moment would define their lives and their discipleship forever. And so there are three questions I want to ask in regards to this transfiguration. First, what does a transfiguration reveal to us about Jesus? Secondly, How did the disciples understand this transfiguration? And lastly, what does this mean for our discipleship? What does a transfiguration mean to our discipleship? So first, what does this reveal to us about Jesus? See, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see this constant tension of Jesus concealing his true identity as God's Son and at times giving glimpses of his true nature, his divine nature. So there are times when Jesus tells people, hey, don't say anything about what you saw, about the miracle I just performed, right? And then there are other times where he just blatantly says, I forgive your sins. Only God can forgive sins, but he says, your sins are forgiven. So he kind of gives these little hints and glimpses of his divine nature, this constant back and forth of hiding and then revealing himself. However, in this mountaintop moment, He doesn't leave anything to the imagination. He just comes out declaring who he is, his true divine nature. Again, in verse 2, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, there's so much just to unpack in these two verses. Why Peter, James, and John? Why only them? How about, where are the other, tw- uh, other nine? 
Uh, see, Jesus had 12 disciples, but within the 12, there was an inner circle of Jesus, and that was, uh, those were Peter, James, and John. They had exclusive access, special privileges into the ministry of Jesus. Why is this? There are you know, reasons to explain, but I don't have time to explain that. But they had the special moment with Jesus up on the mountaintop, just those three. And then he was transfigured. This word transfigured in the Greek means to change. This is where we get our English word metamorphosis. He changed before them. Now we have to understand this, what type of change this was. Because, you know, for a caterpillar to go to a butterfly, that's a dramatic change, right? Uh, What changed about Jesus wasn't his nature. His nature didn't change because why? He is fully God and fully man. Being God, he took on flesh. So he is God here, but what happened at the transfiguration is this divine nature that he concealed over human flesh now is becoming uh, uh, revealed and unveiled. He's unveiling his humanity and showing his divine nature. His glory is being seen. And so this is indeed a radical change. And for the first time, the disciples see Jesus in his glory, not covered in human flesh, not weak, not frail, but in glory. So this is not, this is just an outward visible change that is in accordance with his divine nature. What was kept concealed is now revealed. So the transformation is so complete that his clothes, even his clothes became radiant. And I love the detail because Mark is not about details. That's Luke. Mark's not about details, but he's like, no Clorox, no OxyClean can make the the clothes that Jesus wore that white. That's how brilliant Jesus looked in his glory. Someone that didn't, didn't care for details just wanted to make that very clear. So what is being revealed here about Jesus in his transfiguration? First thing is this. There's more than meets the eye with Jesus. Jesus is more than just a carpenter's son. He's more than just a man from Nazareth. He's more than just a good moral teacher. There's more to Jesus than we know or can see. And so there's no doubt in what Mark is describing here. He's describing a theophany. Theophanies are moments where God appears to humanity in various different forms. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. We see Moses in the burning bush. We see, G- uh, we see God in the, in, in the clouds pillar of clouds and the pillar of fire. We see the tabernacle where there was the dwelling place of God. And so we see various different forms where God reveals himself and is present with his people. And so theophanies are found throughout all of scripture. And so what we're seeing here is that moment, but this is not just a form or, or, or variation of the presence of God, but God himself showing up on this mountain in the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus' glory up to this point was veiled, was veiled in human flesh. In the incarnation, God became man. And so what we're seeing on this mountain is an unveiling of his humble human flesh and appears before his disciples in glory, very, very clearly saying, clarifying for them, I'm not just a man. I'm not just a good teacher. I am God. I am God. And this is the first thing that is revealed in the transfiguration. 
See, this alone, this change that Jesus experiences, that alone would have been enough information for the disciples to say, okay, this is not just a man. This is actually God. But to further right, verify and confirm Jesus' deity, we see two Old Testament prophets show up, heroes of the Jewish faith show up next to Jesus. Verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, Bible scholars and theologians are a bit confused about these two appearing together with Jesus because there's no other cases in all of Scripture except for in Revelations where Moses and Elijah show up together. Now, the text in uh, Revelation has nothing to do with the transfiguration. So theologians and commentators, they're a little confused. Why, why is Elijah and Moses both there? And so I spend so much time trying to discover and, and and answer the question, why are they there? So what's the significance of these two showing up? What do they share in common? They're both prophets of God, right? Both of them received the word of God on Mount Sinai, and both were deliverers of God's people in times of oppression. So Moses was used to rescue God's people from slavery, right? Slavery. Elijah delivered God's people from spiritual oppression namely the worshipers of Baal on Mount Carmel. Right, so there, there's, there's a lot of similarities that we see in Elijah and Moses. But the greatest clue of why they're there, actually, we get from Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. I'm not going to read the passage for you, but if you're interested in the exact details of this prophetic word, you guys can read that uh, on your own. But this prophecy that Malachi is giving has to do with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the end of the age, right? Where there's going to be final judgment, the restoration of all things. And in this prophecy, Moses is mentioned and Elijah is mentioned. See, when Malachi was writing his, 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 this, this uh, prophetic word, the people of God were under Persian rule. The temple was rebuilt, but there was still no king to rule God's people. And they were waiting for the promise of restoration at this time when Malachi wrote this, uh, this word. Now, fast forward to Jesus' time. What is the situation there? They are still under foreign occupation. Rome is now occupying them. And there's still no king and people are still waiting for restoration. See, Moses and Elijah are precursors. They're spoken of precursors and forerunners to the final prophet of God who's going to come to restore all things once and for all. See, the day of the Lord is realized in Jesus Christ. That is why Elijah and Moses are there, to verify this is the final prophet who's going to come to restore all things, to make all things right. And the wait is over. The king is here, and the restoration of all things is at hand. So Elijah and Moses... As great as they are as servants of God, we're only preparers for the Son of God, the final prophet. They are the ones to roll out the red carpet for Jesus. Now, they make a brief appearance, and they disappear. Verse 8, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, what does this tell us? The second truth that re uh, that's revealed in the transfiguration is that Jesus is not just another prophet replacing Elijah and Moses, but he is a better 
and greater profit. You know, I'm an 80s baby. I grew up in the 80s. Uh, some of the favorite groups that I grew up listening to were Destiny's Child and NSYNC, right? Those two were like my favorite growing up. Um, and so I'll listen to them on the radio all the time. Uh, and I don't know no one listens to the radio anymore, but that's what I did. Uh, and it's interesting to see how their careers developed, right? The, the group itself, right? uh, the, the outstanding individuals like Beyonce went on to ha- succeed. The others, you just kind of don't really remember the, their names, Justin Timberlake went on to succeed, right? JT and Beyonce, they're, they're the ones that actually remained out of these groups that went on to do amazing things, right? The greatest performers. Those are my two still favorites. Uh, every once in a while, when they have special performances, whether it's on the Super Bowl or an awards, uh, awards show, they would come out and perform, and then their group, their old group would come back on stage, right? But when you see the other group members, you're just like, oh my gosh, they didn't age well. How come Beyonce never, didn't change? She's just like the same. How come Justin Timberlake just looks the same? Everyone else got their little overweight. Their dance moves are a little bit slower, right? And then you just like, you don't see anyone else. You just still, even the group came out and this nostalgic. All you see is the outstanding nature of the performer and the entertainer of Beyonce and JT. They're just props, right? The, the group are just props, accessories, Right? And then you, after a while, you know, they go under the bleachers or under the stage. And you're like, you don't even notice that they're gone. Because Beyonce is all that matters. Justin Timberlake is all that matters. The same is happening here with Elijah and Moses. Now, don't get me wrong. Elijah and Moses are amazing prophets. They did amazing things for God's people. But they are just simply cameos. They're just sim- simply cameos to Jesus as the main prophet to restore all things. He outlasts even the greatest prophets. He's the one that's going to remain. See, Jesus' ministry overshadows the ministry and work of Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses were mediators of the old covenant. The old covenant was under the law. For you to be blessed, for you to be righteous, you had to observe the law. You have to do the law in order for you to be accepted by God. And see, the law is good. The old covenant is not bad. The law is good because the law came from God. And the law taught people how to live in a holy way. But the law was never the solution to salvation. The law was actually the diagnosis of the problem. That you can't save yourself. You cannot be holy. You cannot be perfect like God. That was was the purpose of the law. See, the law was never the solution. It only pointed out the problem of sin in our lives. Jesus is better. Why is Jesus better? Just as a cure is better than a diagnosis, Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is a mediator of the better, of the new covenant of grace, where Jesus himself fulfills the law. He lives the perfect life, right? He offers us his pure white righteousness as a free gift of grace by faith, right? He he fulfills the law. He, He perfectly obeys it. Even though we were blemished with sin, by faith he makes us the whitest of whites through the bloodshed work of Jesus on that cross. So the transfiguration reveals to us that Jesus is more than just a good teacher. Rather, he is God. He's not just another prophet, but the greatest and final prophet. He is better than the law. He fulfills the law on our behalf and gives us his righteousness. 
That is what is revealed in the transfiguration. Secondly, how did the disciples understand this event? How did they understand the transfiguration? The disciples didn't understand it. They were completely confused. And they were in a panic. Right? Verse 5, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Right? Peter did any, well, what any one of us would do if we're uncomfortable or scared. We do what we know. Right? Uh, when I'm home sitting on the couch and I know that Jane is driving up to the driveway and unless she had a bad day, I go into this panic. I, I just start cleaning. That's, that's kind of just the natural impulse. I just go, I just go around and just clean, cleaning things just so that, you know, when she gets in, she, she won't, you know. That's what I do. <laughs> Peter is in a panic here. He's kind of caught off guard. He doesn't know what to do. He does what any, any good Jewish person would do in, in, a, uh, in a theophany experience. He starts to create a tent. He, or he wants to create a tent. Hey, let me make a tent. Uh, for, for you, for Moses and Elijah, right? Um, he wants to build them uh, a place to stay. Now, in the Old Testament, a tent, right? Uh, this is what we see happening when um, angels show up to Abraham and Sarah, right? Their, their angels have show up and they, they gave them a place to stay. This is what you're supposed to do. And so Peter's like, hey, I'm, a, I'm a good Jew. So th- this, is, this is the idea. This is the idea I come up with. I'm going to build a tent. Now, the Old Testament... The, the, the tent symbolized the tabernacle. Right? The tabernacle was kind of the, their version of church where God's presence dwelled, right? That's, that's where God was. But what Peter failed to realize, because he wanted to build a tent, he realized that Jesus was the tent. Jesus was God's presence. The full manifestation of God's presence, but he wanted to build a tent. He, he, he didn't understand the significance of the transfiguration. He failed to realize that the word of God, God himself became flesh. He, he, this, is, this is God. So you don't need to build a tent. He is the tabernacle. And John chapter one, it tells us that the word became flesh. God became flesh. And then a shadow appears, Right? representing God's glory, and the Father now speaks to his disciples. What does he say? Verse 7, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. It's so interesting that God would talk to the disciples at this point. This, I would be so scared if I, was a, if I were these three. If Jesus is indeed God's son, and his words are God's words, then we are to listen to him. And it's just, it's just, it just makes sense. But what is God specifically asking the disciples to listen to? Did he have something in mind when he told them, hey, listen to him? Now, at this point, I need to uh, mention a very specific detail in our passage that I haven't got to mention yet. Six days have passed. Six days of what? From when? And that is going to be very important for us to understand what God is asking them to listen to. So six days ago, Peter, for the first time, Confess Jesus to be the Christ. Jesus asked his disciples, hey, who do you say that I am? Not what others are, other people are saying. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. The anointed one. That's not Jesus' last name. The anointed one. The Messiah. The chosen one. And then Jesus goes on to describe what the Christ would have to face. 
the Christ, you're right, I am the Christ. The Christ is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected, and he's going to die, and he's going to rise again. And so Jesus told them of this, of the true right, mission of the Christ. What does Peter do? Peter rebukes Jesus. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So after this amazing confession of Peter, say, you are the Christ, the next moment, Jesus calls him Satan. Get behind me. See, Peter didn't understand the true nature of the Christ. Suffering was not in the headspace of the disciples to think that the Messiah, the chosen one, would have to suffer. And then Jesus turns to all that are with him, and then he says this, Matthew 8, verse 34, to chapter 9, verse 1. This is going to be very important for us. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What is God asking his disciples to listen to? It's this right here. This right here. God is telling the disciples to listen to these words and to trust in Jesus' word. You know, I have a two-year-old daughter. Oh, she's going to be three soon. And she's uh, out of the three, or my youngest one. Uh, it's not really doing much. But uh, my second one, is she's, a re- she's really cautious and scared of a lot of different things. Uh, she's, not, she's not as adventurous as my son. And so anytime we're trying to do something new, uh, she's scared. She doesn't want to do it. And so what I have to do oftentimes as a father is just encourage her. Hey, no, it's okay. I'm here for you. So when she's cl- climbing up a big toy and she's like overwhelmed by it, I'm like, I'm here for you, right? But that doesn't just, that doesn't do it. My words just don't do it. I actually have to show her, right? I have to show her how to do it and say that, hey, you know, it's safe. The water is safe. Hey, you can put your head in the water. You're going to be fine. So I have to show her before actually she does it. Right, for her, because she wants to see me do it. See, Jesus is calling his disciples to a life of self-denial. Lose your life if you want to find it. You must deny yourself. You must pick up the cross. You need to learn how to die every single day. And then he also says, but my glory is going to come back. And some of you will not taste death. If I were the disciples at this moment, I'm like, okay. You want me to take you at your word, right? This is my sinful, like, unbelief. Show me then. Give me proof. Give me proof that this is true. Give me proof that you're going to hold to your promise. Please, can you show me? Can you give me more than just what you say? In the transfiguration, Jesus is affirming and confirming what he commanded the disciples to do and the assurance that his glory is going to come back. And some of them will not taste death until they see the full, glorified, resurrected Jesus Christ. This is the goodness of our Savior. His words are good enough. His words are final authority. But in his goodness, he is transfigured before them, showing his glory, telling them, if you listen to me, if you listen to me, if you obey me, 
this will be your reality as well. You too will be transfigured. But even with the demonstration of this glory, the disciples have a hard time understanding and they're confused with the appearance of Elijah. Let me read verses 9 through 13 one more time. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell them no one what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Right? And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. See, the appearance of Elijah was a little confusing for his disciples because in the order of things, the order of things that happens in Scripture, especially with the day of the Lord, is Elijah comes first to restore all things. Elijah first must come back in order to restore all things. Now, if Elijah comes to restore all things, then why, does, why is there suffering? If everything is restored, why does Jesus talk about suffering? Right? So they're waiting for Elijah to come first. But they fail to realize that Elijah did come already. That was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Elijah. He's the one preparing the way. He's the one preaching salvation through repentance. So again, the disciples failed to see the significance of John the Baptist's ministry. Elijah did come. And what did Elijah have to endure? Not only did the Son of Man have to suffer, Elijah had to suffer. How did he die? How did he go? He was beheaded. <laughs> he was beheaded. This question of Elijah that the disciples brought up was a rebuttal, an objection to Jesus' claim that he had to suffer. Because suffering, again, was not in the headspace of the disciples when it came to the Messiah. It just did not make sense. Because in their mind, they thought that Jesus or the Messiah was going to be a warrior king, a political leader to rescue them from Rome, and to establish their own nation. That was the idea of the king. That was their view of the Christ, and that was a flawed view. They didn't understand the prophecies of the Old Testament, that the Son of Man had to come to suffer, suffer to establish his kingdom. So all this talk about weakness, about rejection, about suffering, and death is, is such a downer for the disciples who are following the Christ that they believe would establish his kingdom and they would get a seat in his kingdom. So now we need to piece this all together now. What's going on here? Why the transfiguration and why now? Jesus is preparing his disciples to suffer. Jesus is preparing his disciples to suffer. Please listen carefully. Suffering is not an accidental afterthought of, the, of, of a life of a disciple or the Christian life. It's not an accidental afterthought, but rather it's built into the very design of our discipleship. Now, I know that sucks for us to hear that. It, it, it sucks, but it's true. It's true. Jesus shows us that it's true. Jesus showed us that before going up, we need to come down. Before going up, you need to come down. To find your life, you first must lose your life. 
the last shall become first. Before exaltation, there's humiliation. Suffering precedes glory. That is what we learn from the transfiguration. The very design of our discipleship. See, very soon Jesus will be humiliated. He will suffer and die on the cross. But death will not be the final verdict. He will rise again after three days, conquering sin, Satan, and death. The disciples will see him in the fullness of glory. And what they saw temporarily on the Mount of Transfiguration will be fully realized at the resurrection. The disciples didn't get it. I want to close. What does this transfiguration mean to our discipleship? Because I want us to get it. I really want us to get it. I want us to understand what this all means. First, this great reveal of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration demands a response. It demands a response. See, there can't be indifference or neutrality to this knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. This is a life-changing, life-altering reality. See, many of us, we try to neuter Jesus, right? We just want to make him out to be a good moral teacher. Just follow his teachings. Try to do what he did. Be, a, be nice to people. Be compassionate. Don't judge others. Right? If Jesus was just a good teacher, that's fine. Let's go ahead and just try. Let's try to just, just follow his, his instructions, right? But if Jesus is God, he's the ultimate Lord over our lives, that necessitates complete surrender and submission to him, doesn't it? If he is God, if he is Lord over our lives, it calls us to give our lives completely to him. See, many of us, we don't have an issue with Jesus being our Savior. Where we have a problem with Jesus is making him Lord over our lives. See, Jesus, as the absolute exclusive Lord of our lives, we are called to give our lives completely and wholly to him. So the question I want to ask you guys this morning, do you see him for who he is? Or do we keep him? Do we keep the veil on him to make him more manageable? Right? More manageable, easier to swallow. So we could just see him as a good moral suggester. See, the question of who Jesus is is foundational to our discipleship and foundational to our faith. Do you see Jesus for who he is? Secondly, what does this mean for our discipleship? It is calling us to suffer. The call to discipleship is a call to suffer. The way of glorification is through humiliation. See, Jesus never promised comfort and ease in our Christian lives. See, our cultural Christianity has invented this idea that if you're a Christian, then you should be wealthy, you should be healthy, and you should succeed. See, the ministry of Jesus Christ tells us the complete opposite. Jesus tells us to suffer, to deny ourselves, to sacrifice ourselves. See, this idea is a fabrication of our culture to appease our appetites that are so self-focused and so self-centered. The call to discipleship is a call to die, to pick up our cross daily and to follow him. Lastly, what does this mean for our discipleship? The vision of the transfigured Jesus is a fuel for our mission. 
The vision of the glorified Jesus is fuel for our mission. See, besides Judas, who will actually kill himself out of the 12 disciples, all 11 will become martyrs of the faith. All of them will go to their death proclaiming the gospel message. All of them suffer excruciating deaths. All of them. And why such extreme commitment? Why why go to such lengths for Jesus? Why were they willing to give their lives? It's because they saw for themselves a resurrected, glorified Jesus. He's alive. And this vision gave them the strength to persevere and endure pain and suffering. Brothers and sisters, the vision of the glorified Jesus is going to sustain us when we suffer for the mission of God. And I saw this in Kyrgyzstan this past summer. These young Christians suffering for their faith. And I realized they see Jesus clearer than I do. They see him. There's hope. Even though their parents threaten them, even though the parents want to harm them because of their faith, they still hold on. Because they have a vision of this glorified Jesus. They know that Jesus is not dead. He is alive. Brothers and sisters, how are we going to succeed in the Great Commission? How are we going to be zealous to go out and share the gospel with the world and to our neighborhood and to our community? Right? When, we're, when we're at risk of, of being rejected, when people uh, shun us or, or they make fun of us or even they persecute us, what is going to get us through that? What's going to allow us to finish the mission of God? Only one thing. It is a vision of the glorified Jesus Christ, the transfigured Jesus, who is alive and well today. And he's with us today and forevermore. Do we have the right Jesus? Do we, do we see the right Jesus? Or for our own comfort, again, are we just putting a veil over him? The truth of the matter is, we've actually tasted this glory already. For those that believe in Jesus Christ, we have salvation. We have experienced transfiguration to a certain degree. By his grace and love, we are his. We are his children. We're forgiven. We're reconciled. We are restored. We are redeemed. So yes, we get experienced part of this glorification, but it's only in part, not in full. We are waiting. We're still waiting for the full glorification of our bodies. But until then, until then, the path to transfiguration will be very similar to Jesus. It will be full of pain, suffering, death, and rejection. And this suffering will come in various forms of disease, of sin, loved ones rejecting us, costing us our comfort, costing us our convenience. How are we going to persevere through all of this and pursue, continue to pursue our transfiguration? It's by looking to the transfiguration of Jesus. It's looking to the, and beholding the glory of Jesus. I want to close with this passage, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the image, same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How? How are we going to pursue our mission? How are we going to live out our discipleship in the midst of pain and suffering? It's by beholding. It's beholding the glory of Jesus. You know, he's resurrected. 
he still has his scars, though. He still has his scars and reminds us, again, that our path to our transfiguration will, it involves, it's designed in a way where we will suffer. See, Jesus, who was transfigured on the mountain, will be ultimately disfigured on the cross, unrecognizable as he bears the wrath of God on our behalf. He will die on that cross, but God will resurrect him after three days, and he will enter into glory. See, our, transfig- our transfiguration is made possible. It is promised by Jesus because of what he did for us. He lived a perfect life. He died our death, and he rose again. Let's behold him every day as we live our lives for him, for his glory and for his namesake. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you promise and you actually guarantee our glorification. You gave a glimpse to the disciples of who you really are. And Father, for many of us, we, we, we want to see you clear. We need to see you clear. So help us to see. May you take the blinders off our eyes and our hearts and our minds Help us to see you for who you really are in the fullness of your glory. And our help our lives reflect in absolute allegiance and submission and surrender to that reality that you are God and that you are Lord over our lives. God, you called us on missions. We're here not just so that we can have a good life for ourselves, but you have us here on this earth to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to those that don't know you, both here and to the, to the nations. And a lot of us, are, we're scared to go. We're scared to share the gospel because we're scared of rejection. We're scared of suffering. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would implant, impress upon our hearts and our minds a vision of the glorified Jesus. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's discomfort. But that is temporary. Our glory is eternal. So help us, Lord, on this mission that you've given us. God, we thank you so much for your love. Help us to a people that is shaped by the cross. Help us to live boldly in light of the resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray.